Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for this sign of who you are, what your mission is, and what your authority is, and your purpose, of how you raised the faith of your disciples. I pray that you'll do the same among us this morning as we, as we enter into this gospel story. In your name we pray, amen. Good morning. It's glad to be, glad, I'm glad to be with you this morning and glad that you came and braved the weather and I know I've heard rumblings from some of the older Wisconsinites that this is just isn't anything and why are we closing schools and grumbling so much and starting to feel a little insecure about, about that now, so I want to man up to it. Um, so no, it's good to be here. It's cozy and uh, I'm glad we're all safe and um, I'm glad I can be with you around this story, The Wedding at Cana. It's a famous story. It's one of the famous stories of the Bible and I think, um, you know, it's one of those stories that we've probably heard a lot but there's a lot of mystery in this story and a lot of different kinds of interpretations. There's a lot of questions that it evokes and I uh, have prayed about, you know, how the Lord might want to speak to us about some particular dimension. It's obviously one of those stories where you could preach a lot of sermons from different angles on this one um, because it's just such a special thing that Jesus is doing here. Um, as you recall, we're in our kind of year with John, the beloved. We're contemplating what it means to lean into Jesus' heart, our heart to his, his to ours. And um, Jesus uh, is now on the move. We've spent a long time in the first chapter of John just kind of exploring the glorious nature of the Word made flesh who dwelt among us, and now he's moving out. He's called his disciples, and, um, and he started to speak a little bit into their lives. So we're just at the very start of the story. Not a lot of insight yet into what's going on with this amazing person, Jesus. And, uh, and so uh, John, the author, tells us here that on the third day there was a wedding in Canaan, Galilee. Now, if you know a little bit about Jewish background, you have weddings on third days. Jews read their Bibles very, very carefully, so can you imagine why you would have a wedding on the third day? If you read uh, the first chapter of Genesis, you'll find that on the third day, God says it's good twice. So when would you want to have your wedding? you'd want to have your wedding on the day when God said good twice. He does that on another day too, but I'll let you do some homework and find out which day that was. So Jewish people typically have weddings on one of two days because they want that double blessing. And so here's a wedding on the third day and Mary's already there and Jesus also is invited and his disciples. Now that's a little bit of a stretch. You know, it's not like people had gobs of money uh, back then and um, you know, I think probably it was something I would hazard to guess like a potluck. You know, you're supposed to kind of help out just a little bit. Jesus all of a sudden comes with a crowd, and uh, I like it. You know, Jesus moves around with a crowd quite a lot, um, and uh, he liked people. He liked to have a good time. Uh, there was some reason why he was invited, and there was some reason that he went. So somebody thought a wedding was a good idea, and Jesus thought it was a good idea to go there with his buddies, and, um, and so he goes there, and there's a problem right off the bat. Uh, the wine runs out. And, uh, and now things get rather interesting. Um, Mary says they have no wine. 
Now, it's hard to know exactly from the text why she said that, what she was thinking exactly. Something was behind that because it evokes a certain kind of response out of Jesus that is arresting, different. All right, so I don't know exactly what Mary may have been thinking. Uh, You can imagine lots of things. You know, certainly she was concerned. Either this was a family member or a friend, somebody close, that's why she's there. And she, you know, being a good, you know, careful observer, you know, who's been through this before, um, notes that there's some pressure or some stress on the situation. Uh, They have run out of wine, and that's not a good thing. And so Mary brings that forth. Now, this may not apply to some of you, but to some of us, if we've heard this story before, I want to caution us against something. It's really easy to fall into the trap of reading the story in such a way that Mary looks kind of manipulative and Jesus looks kind of grumpy. (laughs) Have you noticed that about yourself? When you think of the wedding of Cana, just kind of a downer. Like Mary kind of gets a little perturbed and Jesus says something unusual and it doesn't seem like a very happy story. Then there's a miracle and then they move on. All right, um, that may not be your impression of the wedding at, at Cana, but I just want to acknowledge that for some of us, that's kind of what it looks like. I've heard bad sermons. Uh, um, I've given many bad sermons, so I don't mean that to be patronizing, but um, uh, I've heard bad sermons that say something like this. Oh, Mary's a good Jewish mother, and she's kind of trying to steer her Jewish mother. That's very demeaning. <laughs> Uh, I don't think Miriam is being manipulative and I don't think Jesus is being grumpy and I don't think she was being stereotypically Jewish and I don't think any of that. So um, for those of you that may have been caught up in that sort of dynamic of interpretation, let's kind of set that aside and look at it just this way. We don't really actually know from the text why Mary asked this, made this statement. We don't know all of the motivations. I wanna look at this very positive this morning. Mary was bringing a concern to Jesus. I don't think it was merely an observation. I think there was something there in Mary's question that registered a note of concern. And that's a good thing, that she brought this to Jesus. You know, I don't know exactly when Joseph moves on from the scene when he passes away. But for some period of time, Mary would probably have relied on Jesus for a lot of things as the oldest of the family. Uh, She needed him, and she was probably used to depending on him. And I guess, although there's not a lot of stories about it, that Jesus was probably very dependable. (laughs) Don't you think? I mean, probably the kind of person that you would want to go and tell things to if you were having difficulty and challenge. Jesus was probably a fabulous son. And it would have been natural for her to bring to Jesus something that she was uh, concerned about. He's the man of the house. She relates to Jesus within if I could put it this way, within the scope of her understanding. That may be an odd way of saying it, but in other words, everything that Mary knew about Jesus, you know, the the way in which he was born, the experience that she had of losing him at the temple, if you know that story, the experience of having her husband pass away and relying on Jesus, the experience of 
of, of living a daily life with him is how she knew him. And she brings her statement, they have no wine, forth from all of that. And that's why I don't think this is inauthentic and manipulative or all of that other stuff. She simply says what's most natural for her to say. She depends on the one who is dependable and says within the scope of her knowledge of this one who she knows is special, she says, they have no wine. I think that's worth emulating, not critiquing. She relates to Jesus within the scope of her understanding, and I want to encourage each of us to do exactly the same. Like Mary and like the disciples in this stage of the journey, their understanding of who Jesus is is very incomplete. They know just a little bit, and what they know is amazing, but it's not full and complete, and it never will be because Jesus is eternal. She does not let that stop her, and it should not stop you from approaching Jesus within the scope of your understanding. He's eternal. He's more than we ever can fathom. But what we're going to find out is more of what? More of the kind of thing that would kind of cause you to step back in fear, or more of the kind of thing that causes you to lean in even closer because this one is so vital and so life-giving and so dynamic and so good, so trustworthy. So Mary is not to be faulted for not knowing exactly what Jesus was up to. She's relating to him truthfully and authentically, and in fact, Jesus doesn't simply deny that. So let's move forward into that. What Jesus says, he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, that's tricky to translate from the Greek. It's an idiom. It, the literal translation is what to you and me, or actually it's the other way around, what to me and you. And it's an idiom. It doesn't translate exactly, but basically in that part of the phrase, Jesus is saying, look, we're on parallel tracks. You have your program and I have my program. How are they related? He's not trying to say, he's not being dismissive. This word woman is also hard to translate because we don't have a formal but, but, but familiar term. In, in, in older days, you would have said madam. We don't have something quite like that in our language that I can think of that is on the one hand very, very polite very appropriate, very respectful, and still very relational, but not quite what you would expect. So I just want to say Jesus is not being dismissive. He's not being impolite. He's not being aggressive or grumpy. He's actually placing the situation in a new mode. He's moving it into a different center of gravity. And he says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if I were Mary, I would probably not understand any of that. That would all be odd. Because Jesus is bringing into the situation now not simply something within her scope, he is now bringing something within 
his scope. And he's broadening out Mary's understanding of the situation into a larger field. Not contradictory, not dismissive, just larger. He's establishing his own agenda. Not by contradicting Mary's, but by lifting it into something bigger. And that's also something that I think that the more we get to know Jesus, we should welcome. That when we approach Jesus like Mary did with our concern, because what does the Apostle Paul say in the letter to uh, the church in Philippi? Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And what does God do? in his love and in his mercy and his compassion, and and here is a point I want to bring out in our story, his commitment to his purpose. He will honor and dignify your request in the way that only he can, which is sometimes by shaping and remolding and reforming it into something that's even deeper and more satisfying. All right, not... Not so different that we never feel like our prayers are answered. Some people will say, God may answer your prayer, but it may be a different question or something like that. And then we get confused and you say, well, what's the point of praying then? I think we have to be careful of that. That when Jesus takes our request into himself, he will transform it because he knows best. But it's not going to be so odd that you're feeling like you're talking to somebody else completely or like, what was the point? It's never, ever, ever pointless. Never. It is never pointless to make your request known for God, and you can trust him that as he brings it out into a richer and fuller purpose, it is for your good, because he's trustworthy, and that's what we're going to see here. There was not something in Mary's, there was something in Mary's request that was not fully formed, and so Jesus now is going to bring that into his purposefulness, And Mary responds beautifully. She responds to Jesus just like she responded to the archangel when the announcement was made, you will bear a son. Jesus said, uh, Mary said, do you remember what she said? Be it unto me according to your will. And the way I read this is when Mary turns to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you, this is not some kind of manipulative run around Jesus. I didn't like his response. I know I've got this kind of agenda as if Mary were steering Jesus. And I, f- I find that a very inappropriate way of interpreting this passage. Mary, nobody steers Jesus. And that's one of the key points I want to make. God is not steered. Mary does not manipulate Jesus or put him in a bind what in I, the way I read this is that Mary actually so full of trust says, in effect, guys, I don't know what he's going to do, but I trust him to manage this situation well because I know him. I know him. I've lived with him. And you can trust him too. There are all kinds of different things going on in our lives, all kinds of anxieties, all kinds of problems, all kinds of ways of dealing with those problems. And Jesus wants you to share all of it. 
He wants you, like Mary, to hold nothing back. He also wants you to trust him. And when he speaks to us, even in a tone that may be at first a little arresting or unfamiliar, to respond like Mary did and say, full of faith, let's do whatever he tells us. Wouldn't that be a great thing? When we bring our requests to God and God actually shocks us and surprises us by answering back, then what if, like Mary, we said, let's do whatever he tells us? Do you see how Mary's response is a response of faith? Doesn't that sound more like Mary? It, it does to me. And making Jesus not grumpy, doesn't that sound more like Jesus? I don't know about that one. <laughs> Let's see. I get Mary. She's nice. She's a mom. But Jesus is a little confusing sometimes. Um, I love Mary's response because Mary says, in effect, look, I trust him. Let, just, just do what he says. I don't know what he's doing. And, you know, this is maybe too much liberty, but Mary may even says, look, I don't, I don't even know what he's talking about. But, but whatever it is, it's very trustworthy and it's very good. Jesus' response, though, let's move into that a little bit because Jesus is not steerable. He's not able to be manipulated. If we think that Jesus is able to be manipulated, that will shape our devotion. We will live a life of trying to steer and manipulate Jesus to get what we want. It's like a big vending machine. You don't have a personal relationship with a vending machine. Right, you, vending machines do what they tell you to do. If you drop the coin in, it gives you a candy bar, and if it doesn't, then you kick it, and you tip it, and you do other things to it, <laughs> right? And you call the complaint department. <laughs> All right, that's not God. God, thank God, has his own agenda, and you can see that I'm, this is what Jesus is bringing into this conversation. He says something that Mary and the disciples don't understand yet. He says, my hour has not yet come. Which means that, whatever that means, Jesus is saying, I am going to reshape and recast what's about to happen according to my mission and my agenda. And we who have read the story, we know the secret, right? John kind of alludes to us, you know, in, in, in chapter nine, at least this is the way I read, or in verse nine, rather. You know, there's this little comment, though, the, the guy who draws the water didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants who had, I'm sorry, the, the, the master of the feast, he didn't know where the wine came from, but the servants who had drawn it, they knew. They had seen the miracle. And I kind of feel like that's us. You know, we kind of know what's going on because we, we know the story. And so we know what Jesus said when he said, my hour has not yet come. He's talking about the hour of his triumph over sin through death on the cross and through resurrection and pouring out the Spirit, his hour of triumph, his hour of suffering and atonement has not yet come. But that's what this is about. His mission is only good. His mission is only to triumph, to conquer, to bring truth and life. And he said this over and over already in the first two chapters. He's going to say it over and over and over again in the Gospel of John. And this is what I want you to believe and to trust that what God says is coming out of this, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have come to bring you life and that you might have it more abundantly. I have come to bring you 
living water that has no end. I'm the bread of life. Whoever eats of this bread will never die. I am the resurrection and the life. He says it over and over and over again. I'm just getting started. When you read the Gospel of John, you will see what is his agenda. And sometimes when he speaks to us, we don't quite understand. But trust is something that comes even at a deeper level. Trust says even when I don't understand, I'm still related to the one who is so trustworthy. And he can't be manipulated or steered because Jesus is a person. God in three persons. Blessed Trinity. God the Father. God the Son. God the Holy Spirit. Three persons. And he's relating to you like a person. God the person who doesn't get manipulated, but who will reframe out of his love and compassion the very thing that you're bringing to him that you care about and that he cares about because you care about it. So Jesus at, at times is very assertive about his own agenda. In fact, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's this story where, uh, this, is, um, this is quoted from Mark's version, his mother and his brothers came and they were standing outside and they sent to him and called him and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you and Jesus answered them, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Well, that's kind of harsh. But can, can you see that Jesus is not letting even a familial bond confuse his agenda and that's so that he doesn't drown with the people in the water. That's us. <laughs> you know, we've used this metaphor before. When we're flailing about in the water, Jesus doesn't jump in and we all go down together. That's essentially what he's saying here. I have such stability. I have such confidence. I have such purpose and strength. I have such integrity. I have such knowledge. I have such capacity. I have such capability. I have so much resource in myself that I will save you. I will solve your problem, and I will do it in such a way that it will bring you eternal life. Not just a solution, but life. That's what he's saying here, and we can see that here in the way that uh, Jesus moves into this situation here. Now, can't you just respect Mary because Mary's initiative and her response actually opens the door for Jesus to move right in and do what he wanted to do, which does actually answer Mary's request, but in a whole different mode. I love what Mary does because as, as the author of Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse six, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Do you have that kind of faith when you approach God that you have a promise that he rewards those who seek him? And you may say, well, I've tried that. In fact, that's, my, that's the whole knot of my faith crisis, that I tried it and then I don't, it, it, he doesn't seem to answer. Well, my, my guess is that it's probably in this area that he's moving forth 
not within your own scope, but within his, which includes yours, but brings it out, not just into a solution to a problem, but will import into you life eternal. And that's what we see Jesus doing here. He could have gone out and bought wine. I mean, if it was just a solution to the problem, this would have been the story. Hey, Jesus, there's no wine. Okay, just, just a second here. Let me, uh, let me get my wallet out. You know, hey, hey Judas, go, you know. And, and there was wine. You know, you'd say, Mary, and Mary would say, hey, thanks. You know, I knew he was going to solve that problem and everybody would be happy. Mary would have been happy. Jesus would have solved the problem. There would have been wine at the party and there would be no story. All right, that's what we do. And that's what we think Jesus will do. We think Jesus is going to search around for his five bucks and send his, and, and then we, we and, and we're calm because the problem got solved. Right. If this parable were only about problem solving, there wouldn't have been anything to say. Jesus, through his own will, brings his own agenda into it, and oh, there's wine. All right. <laughs> oh, he solves the problem. He does, as Paul would say, exceeding above what Mary can ask or imagine. And that's why we're standing here thinking about this story because Jesus now does something completely extraordinary. He transforms the ordinary into the extraordinary. He takes ordinary old water and he transforms it into wine. And now things get really exciting. You know these stone jars? Um, stone is kind of kosher for the Jewish people because it doesn't absorb the milk and you're not supposed to mix stuff according to the law of Moses. So they would use stone vessels to, uh, to have pure water for different kinds of rites. And, uh, and they were big. And so you get a sense that when John's telling a story, you know, there are big stone jars and he fills them to the brim with water. He doesn't say, hey, just put a little symbolic amount of water in there. You know, I got an eyedropper here. Can just, I don't, we don't need to be excessive. I'm just trying to show something. Just, just put a little eyedropper, you know, here's a teaspoon of water. Just put that in there, you know, and that'll be enough to get, to kind of convey the picture. No, Jesus says, I want, to the brim. Fill them up to the brim. He doesn't want any mistake. Plus, he likes to have a good time, I think. You know, where else does that come from? Fill it to the brim. I'm not like that. I'm very cautious. You just, there's, if, if there's six stone jars, like just one will be in, you know, just one jar will be fine. They're already, you know. Jesus is just, and this is important because what is he tapping into? Again, you know how we, you know, one hand, Jesus could have just solved a problem. We're like, yeah, that's not what he's about. Or we could say Jesus is a magician, right? He just wants to dazzle people, like a magic trick. You know, in that case, Jesus would have had, I don't know, you know, he would have had rabbits coming up out of the stone jars then instead of wine. You know, he could have said, you know, Shazam, and the disciples would say, wow. And you're like, well, that doesn't quite capture what's going on here either. And do you see how inhumane that would be as if your life is just simply nothing but kind of a, a, a forum for him to, to do magic in your life? No. Do you know, God had spent thousands of years disclosing his nature and his character to the Jewish people. He spent a long time with the Jewish people saying very beautiful things. You know, he, he made precious promises to them. 
We read about one of them in our, um, yeah, well, let me get to the, uh, yeah. We read about one of them in, a, in our Old Testament readings this morning. He says, behold, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seeds, and the mountain shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities. Is that not beautiful? This is love language. And so Jesus isn't just trying to do magic tricks and dazzle people as though that were the point. You know, when Jesus does miracles, in our, in our modern mindset, the, the, we tend to ask this question. How did he do that? What's the trick? You'll notice, though, that in the Gospel of John, that's not what people say. They say, who is that? They say, what does this mean? That's a very different response. The purpose isn't how did he do it. The purpose is what does this mean? And so the fact that Jesus is transforming water into wine in the context of a marriage ceremony, that starts to like resonate with the Jewish people around him and say, we've heard this before. We've heard something like this before about new wine and restoration and the move of God on people and celebrations of weddings. We've, you know, that's what you'll see Jesus doing is moving into the Jewish consciousness and saying, yeah, I'm already here. I formed your consciousness. I wrote these love letters. And now the one who wrote the letters is right here in front of you. And so when the disciples believe, and that's the fruit of Jesus' activity is it builds faith, what they're believing is not that Jesus can do magic tricks. They're believing that there's something about him that his tune is starting to resonate with music they've heard before. And they're like, this is God. This is God's stuff. This is stuff God does. He brings joy. He restores the waste places. He rebuilds. He's restoring our identity. We are God's people. And now we're meeting someone who says things to us that only God has ever said. I recognize that tone somewhere along the way. And that's what happens when God moves in your life. That's the difference between God the fixer the vending machine and God the magician who just, you know, does things that you can't understand in your life. This is God the lover, God the friend, God the savior, God the redeemer, God the restorer, God the builder up, God the fulfiller of his promises, God the one who can take your request and return to you something exceedingly above what you can ask or imagine, something that has the taste of heaven and the new world then, now in the present. That's what Jesus brings to you, something that takes your alpha and your omega and integrates them, the beginning and the end, and you can say, I trust him. I believe him. He can do miracles. And I don't want to skip over that part of this. It is a miracle. And God does 
miracles and he can do miracles for you and he wants your heart is what he's after here and what he's giving to himself and the first of the sign gifts and there are others and if you want a little bit of homework you can you can look them up and see what the other sign gifts are right this is the first of his signs where he manifests his glory that's another sermon and and that one will be preached later on for sure um But this is the first, and I want you just to let this work in you, that Jesus, the miracle worker, is just, in in this point of the narrative, is just beginning to integrate his loved ones. And do you know, friends, Jesus chose all these people. You might kind of skip over that, because Jesus was invited to the party, but friends, he invited them long before they ever invited him. Mary didn't choose Jesus. The disciples didn't choose Jesus. The Jewish people didn't choose Jesus. Like, everybody at that party, this is the kind of funny thing, he invited all of them. And we may think, right, that we're, we're waiting for him to come, and it feels like that sometimes, but he has invited you. You are the guest, and that's the glorious surprise at the end of the world, friends, is that we, as it says in Revelation, in our Revelation passage, we are the wedding guests at the feast that he is throwing and that he's set up for us from time immemorial. He's the lamb slain from the foundation of the very world. Your names written in his book, the great book of who's been invited. And I just pray now that you will let God be God in your life. He's not able to be manipulated or steered. Thank God. He's attending to everything that you're bringing forth before him. Make your requests known to him. Trust him. Let him be who he is. And let's do whatever he says. And like the disciples, let's be amazed and have faith at the miracle of renewal that will occur in your life as he connects your life to your eternal destiny in Jesus Christ. Amen.